Jay Johnson here, and I want to welcome you today to our daily podcast series, Success Diaries. You have dreams of success, and we're here to give you real-life stories that inspire you. From CEOs, entrepreneurs, coaches, and business owners, if they can do it, you can too. No BS, no fluff. Let's get to it. I believe in you. So today on our podcast, Success Diaries, we have an entrepreneur named Todd Snively. And Todd has been in business since 1988. That's correct, 1988. He's owned numerous six and seven figure businesses, and he's had great success in helping others be successful too. So I thought it would be very important for the listeners to find out what his story was and how he came to be so successful. And I know one of his hot buttons is really helping other people become empowered and live their dreams. So, Todd, I've read some of your story. I think it's fascinating. Thank you for coming on today. Please tell our listeners your journey. Well, first, it's my absolute privilege to be here with you. So thank you very much for having me. And I need to fix my bio. Actually, my first business started in 1983 and uh, actually sold. Yeah, I sold that business and went into becoming a professional pilot. So Other than being in the Air Force, my one only true real job was flying as a commercial pilot under contract for the post office, UPS, and and FedEx. And I did that until 1988. I thought I'd love flying for a living, but they took something I love and they just beat the snot out of it. So I decided I needed to get out, get back to working for myself, and just take control. So I started my second business in 1988. Okay. And have been self-employed ever since. And so my second business actually did very well also. So I had a string of 12 businesses that I did six and seven figures with, and all of them did really well. One did so-so, and then one was a complete nuclear disaster. What, what, what were those businesses? Well, I had everything from a legal service business. I, that was actually my first business where I did process service and a debt collection for attorneys. I would take their judgments and go collect them. Then I actually formed a licensed collection agency and I would buy charged off debt for five to 10 cents on the dollar and turn around and collect it as my own. I have to stop you there. So for the listeners that have credit card debt and they get collection notices, those that was you, like you would buy those so how did right? Well, originally you would start with the bank coming out, like Citibank would come right. after you, right? right? And then Citibank Collection Department. And then eventually, because they were a bank, they can't carry debt for too long. So their charter requires them to charge off that debt. They sell it at a discount and the open market. People like me buy it okay. for pennies on the dollar. So if I own three thousand dollars in debt, you would buy it for how much? Five thousand dollars? Yeah. Oh, I might get that for a hundred to two hundred dollars. No, and then yes. you go and collect. Correct. And when you collect, how does that work? Okay, so what I would do originally is I would take the entire list of the entire portfolio. Maybe there's three, four hundred people in that portfolio, and I would run a credit check on everybody because I was a licensed credit bureau. They now owed me, so I had a permissible purpose for running their credit, okay. and I would see if they had moved, if they were employed, did they have bank accounts? Because Traditionally, by the time it got into my hands, right. three, four, five years had gone by. And people think, oh, the credit card company just forgot me. Right. And they start living their life again. 
and they create bank accounts and jobs and they buy cars and stuff like that. So all of that's on the credit report. So I would send them one letter to their new address, basically saying, hi, I purchased your debt from Citibank. You now owe me 100% of whatever that amount is. I have, you have 10 days to pay it or contact me or I'll sue you in the local district court. And that was exactly what you wrote. Now, oh, yes. Was there debt accruing all that time? Like interest yes. charges and everything? So that yes. must have shocked people. And the way people handled it was always different. And we generally heard from very few people from the letter. Most people right. get that letter. They're like a deer in the headlight. They throw it away. And I wasn't kidding. 99% of those cases, we filed suit in the wow. local district court. We tended to buy just that in Michigan. So mm -hmm. all of the people were in Michigan. So it was pretty easy for us to take a big stack of papers down to the court once a week and, <laughs> and file them in the various courts, do the service. And I would say 90% of the time, nobody did anything. And we would get a default judgment for the full amount, plus interest and filing wow. fees and service fees. And I already knew where they worked. Sure. So we did what's called a writ of garnishment, and we could take up to 25% of their take-home pay. That's yeah. when they would contact us. <laughs> That's when they would wake up. Yeah, when their employee yeah. goes, hey, uh, I need to take out $120 this week. But some people didn't. I remember one debt, it was $28,000. And this guy worked for Chrysler, and he worked double shifts. So he was getting like time and a half on the second shift and never said a word. We did the garnishment every week. And ended up collecting like $34,000 from this guy just because he wouldn't call and, and make a payment arrangement because wow. we would work with anybody. But yeah, at the same time, when a debt gets that far along, I mean, these people had no intentions of paying. And when right. they got their life straight, they had no intentions of paying. So it's just, it is what it is, but it wasn't a business that I took judgment on anybody, but at the same time, you need to face these things and take care of them. And if somebody had contacted me when they got the letter, Right. I probably would have took payments for 40 cents on the dollar, you know, make really? their life as really? easy as possible. Wow, nice. right. But it's when they put their head in the sand and say, oh, I'm just going to ignore this. Wow. Okay. Bad yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those habits probably what got them into trouble to begin with. Mm -hmm. By the way, that particular business, I would go back to in between other businesses. So when I would like sell a business and be like, gosh, what am I going to do now? A lot of times I would just go buy more portfolios of debt because I could hire one or two people to help me do that. It's all just paperwork. It's all very straightforward. And so I would do that in between businesses. One of my favorite businesses I had, though, was I was laying in bed one night, about two o'clock in the morning after the Tonight Show. This probably was 1989, mm -hmm. right around there. And one of those TV commercials came on where the scaddily class uh, dressed women would like oh, yeah. say, call this 900 number and for five bucks a minute, we'll whisper sweet nothings into your ear. And I saw that and I'm like, who gets that money? You know, who gets that five bucks a minute, right. right? And so I spent a few months investigating that business and it ended up starting my own 900 number marketing company. And we invented programs like 1-900 Info Law, where you could call, talk to a live attorney, uh, ask a nurse, programs like that. Uh, no psychic lines or anything like that. And we were the first 900 number company to actually sell information about products and then give the products away. So if we had a fishing lure, brand new fishing lure, guys, sure. you know, it's yeah. magic. It'll catch fish. Call 1-900-FISHING-LURE, learn all about this lure, leave us your name and address. We'll send you a lure absolutely free. That was a lot of fun. 
we ended up working with a lot of charitable companies, Clint Eastwood and Robert Stack with the Marshall Foundation. Wow. They wanted to raise money with 900 numbers. And so we did a bunch of work like that. And after that one, that's when I got into trading some commodities. We did commodity trading and I owned a video store. That was probably the most fun business, you know, like from a blockbuster, just, like a, that kind of a concept. I just sold a business. My daughter was born and my wife, it was kind of funny. She said to me, you know, gosh, we rent so many movies. We could probably buy a video store. And I like, yeah, ha, ha, ha. Oh, wait a minute, maybe. <laughs> so so the very next day I went and I found this rundown video store in the middle of a neighborhood. The guy, 12 years he had it and he was just ready to sell. Sure. So I bought it for almost nothing, moved it right down next to the Blockbuster on the main <laughs> drag and entered into a deal with a company that would lease me as many copies of the new releases. So I would always have them on the shelf on a rental share basis. So literally people would go into Blockbuster to go get that latest Tom Cruise Could, movie. They didn't have it. it. Right. They come right next door to my <clears throat> store and I go, yeah, I got 50 copies over there. Grab one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we loved competing with Blockbuster. That was just sure. a lot of fun. Yeah, that's fun. Then the big disaster that I had with that business was the commodity trading company, very highly federally regulated. And I had bright ideas that the rules didn't apply to me. And I was going to do something special for customers and make things cheaper. And that's the wrong business to do that in, by the way, because mm -hmm. not only does the competition not appreciate that, right. and the competition, it's by big. the way, yeah. and they're some of the toughest guys you'd ever want to come up against. And a lot of them have no ethics whatsoever, but it's highly federally regulated. So not only do you have the old boy network, but you have all the rules. And so it's the wrong industry to say, you know, I'm going to go outside of the rules and try to do things better for people. And when I did that, I was ending up basically just taking a lot of business from these other guys and they all just ganged up on me and the regulator showed up one day and they go, yeah, you can't do this way, Todd. And I'm like, well, all right. So that business got shut down in February of mm -hmm. 2002. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally shut down. Like they, one day, just shut it down. Yeah. The, the regulators walked into my office and they said, we don't think this is following the rules. So we're going to have to take this to a review board. And I said, well, if I'm not following the rules, I said, I'm just going to shut down and mm -hmm. send uh, all the clients their money back and just do that. What was really funny is they weren't like that happy with that decision. It's, I don't know what they wanted to have happen, but it took them forever. I ended up giving all of the money to the government, it took them forever to get it back to the clients. So all the clients were getting upset. It just turned into a real something. Yeah. But all I knew in February of 2002 is that I was now $2.2 million in debt. I had no income. I didn't know what to do. I had agreed to sign my house over as towards part of the debt. And there I was. Okay, so what am I going to do? No money, no licenses. I don't know what I'm going to do. And a friend of mine took me out to lunch. And he asked that question. He goes, so what's next? I said, I don't have a clue. I, said, I'm, I still have brain fog. Right, and I'm in right. shock over what just happened. And he's kind of chewing on his sandwich. And he says, well, why don't you try that eBay thing? I heard people are making money on eBay. I said, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> I just <laughs> didn't really understand what he was saying, but it didn't sound like me anyway. But I'm driving home and I'm thinking, what else do I got? So I'm walking through my house and I'm looking at all the old things that I don't need anymore. And I said, all right, let me try this. So yeah, March 2002. I sold about 17, 18 things I'd laying around the house for more money and faster than I thought. So on I eBay. Said, well, maybe, 
on eBay, oh, all on okay. eBay. So that was your introduction to eBay. I'm yes. going to sell some some stuff I don't need. Exactly. Okay. We're talking about crazy stuff that people with money just bought for no reason. I had a framed thousand dollar bill. I mean, stupid stuff. You okay. Know? Yeah. But it all went. It all went. And so the next thing I had to do was find more stuff. That was how my brain worked. I said, well, that worked. Let's find more stuff to sell. Ended up buying 26 pallets of customer return goods from Sam's Club. Nobody knows this. What do you mean nobody knows this? The people who are listening, I'm telling you right now, no idea that you can do that. About customer return goods? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I'm telling you, that was 2002. And now today, it's a bigger business than ever with customer return goods. Well, I mean, e-commerce has just exploded since then. That's why. Yeah. Yeah, If you think about it, I mean, the more stuff that sells, the more stuff that gets returned. returned. It's completely linear, right? As sales grow, so do returns. Not a higher percentage, but just as a gross number. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's actually a bit of a problem. You know, the green people are just losing their mind over how much perfectly good stuff ends up in the landfill because nobody knows what to do with it. People are selling fashion, like Dior dresses and high name fashions. And when Macy's or whoever sells them takes a return, the dress companies are saying, yeah, just burn them or just throw them in the dumpster. Do not let them get on the secondary market because they don't want the competition. So there's lots, but there's lots of stuff out there. That is still a fraction of my business 20 years later. So that's how we started online selling physical products. And we still do that, but it's still just a percentage of one of the six online businesses I have, you know, Mm -hmm. everything just grew from that. But that was this, that saved my butt. We did $1.1 million the first year in revenue. Those first 26 pallets just set it all off. I had to get a warehouse space. I had to buy a used forklift. I'm literally driving this used forklift around my empty warehouse, waiting for that truck to show up, wondering if I had made the right decision. Wow. (laughs) It's crazy. So I'm assuming that you took your friend back out to lunch and paid for it. No, actually. It's kind of sad, to be honest with you, that that friend was the police chief for a city that actually where my warehouse ended up being a suburb where I was close to. And he kind of felt I was headed for prison based on everything that he knew about what. Had oh, happened. I see. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was actually it was a goodbye lunch. He's like, you know, I'm the chief of police. You're probably headed to prison. It's probably best if we're not friends anymore. And I'm like, wow. But I don't think he understands what he did for me wow. <laughs> at lunch. With that idea. Yeah, it's crazy. Things happen. I heard like once that, on though. the radio, this was back when I was flying for a living. I heard on the radio, someone said, every person has no less than six ideas every year that if properly implemented would make them a millionaire. And I, I said, that. wait a minute, I have six ideas <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that I started listening. I started listening to yeah. the voice after So that. listen, when you bought pallets from like secondary market, I mean, were you able to choose your category? Yes. Like clothing or outdoor sporting goods or weight? Not only could I choose my category, but a lot of the, everything that I bought was manifested. So what that means is I usually had a list of what was supposed to be on that pallet with right. UPC codes, uh, retail, what it was worth from a retail point of view. I had a lot of information and I eventually developed some software that I could dump those manifests into. It would go out and do the research on what things were currently selling for, mm-hmm. subtract, account for a 50% reduction because it was used and tell me what I should make profit-wise right. from good. that pallet. Yeah, then I know how much I could pay. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. I've always turned to software whenever I could to help me make decisions like that and mm-hmm. allow me to scale. 
software is very useful. Yeah, I would say so, especially today, even so much technology, so sophisticated. So I was running this business until 2004, and we had built a lot of websites also to help us sell some of these things. And I really enjoyed building the websites. And Google kept sending me these emails saying, you should join our AdSense program. We'll pay you to put our ads on your website. And again, I was just like, no, no, no. And then one day I said, well, let me think about this. Let me try this. Because we had so many websites now that we had up and running for various niches. I signed up for this AdSense program. And so you have all these advertisers going to Google saying, show our ad, you know, and they pay for keyword clicks and things yeah. like that. So Google needs, not only do they show them in search, but they need web properties to put these ads on. And so they give you a little snippet of code, you stick it on your website, they show uh, relevant ads based upon your content. And if somebody comes to your site, clicks on the ad, they share the ad revenue with you. So I put a, on a couple of pages of one site and the next day I made a dollar 38. And I looked at that and I said, a dollar 38. Wow, if I could just multiply that a thousand times a day, now I've got something. So I developed this software again that would create a 500 page niche specific websites in like two minutes. And this was back in 04, 05, when things were very easy to get indexed on Google. And at that point, I had two and a half million indexed pages on Google, making about $135,000, $155,000 a month from Google, from AdSense wow. income. Wow. Then I got the letter. <laughs> and the letter basically said, hey, remember that thing back in 2002? Well, we're going to prosecute you. We think there was a, a law broken. And it was kind of funny because they couldn't figure out which law for a long time. But when all the lawyers got involved and figured it out, they felt I was just doing enough wrong that they wanted to make an example yeah. out of me. So I yeah. said, okay. So they charged me January of 2005. I went in and pled guilty, straight up guilty to one count of mail fraud. And I didn't have a plea deal. I was just like, I'm just going to leave it up to the judge. You know, whatever the judge says, my punishment should be. I'm just going to go with that. Did you think you so, were just going to get fined? Or I was getting a lot of different opinions. First time, it wasn't really a major thing, but... The problem I was having, they were telling me, is it was around the time of Martha Stewart, her thing. Uh -huh. It was the time of Steve Madden, mm -hmm. that thing. Oh, sure. And so these prosecutors were trying to build their reputations, these federal prosecutors, on white collar crime that involved millions of dollars. And here I was. Sure. And so there's a lot I could say about it. But the bottom line is the only way anybody had a chance to take a shot at me it was because of what I did, the mm -hmm. decisions that I had made. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't really be upset about it. I just wanted to be a man about it and said, okay, I screwed up, made some bad decisions. I'm going to be a man. Just give me my punishment. I'm going to take care of it. And never in a million years, this was August now of 2005, never in a million years did I think the judge was going to say, eh, how about 60 months? I think that's about right. <laughs> I'm standing there. That took them all a 30 seconds to spit that out. When he said that, what happened mentally? How did you process that? In my mind, think what that really was. Wow, that's 60 months. That's five years. Right. Wow, this is 2005. That's going to be 2010. But honestly, I felt relief at the same time. Because it wasn't hanging I'd, over your head. I'd gone so long not knowing what was going to happen. 
all the lawyers back in March of 2002 said, you know, they could come after you and this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, well, all I want to do is cooperate. All I want to do is cooperate and just get this behind me. And it wasn't until August of 2005 when I found out it was going to be 60 months. So at that point, the judge basically said, uh, just go home. Oh, actually, it was kind of funny. He asked me, he goes, well, how old are you? You know, I I was 41 at the time. He goes, ah, you're going to be fine. He said, go through their drug program, get some drug education and be on your good behavior. He said, you'll get out in three years. You know, it'll be fine. He was like justifying it in front of me. And I'm like, thanks judge. But (laughs) (laughs) yeah, so you go home, you tell the kids, oh man, was that hard? I'll bet that was probably one of the hardest things. The hardest part was the day I left. So this was August. So telling them was hard. And then you got to wait for the letter. And then the letter shows up the end of September. It says, yeah, just report to this prison by October 15th. It's all real nonchalant. You know, judges like, yeah, go home, wait for the letter. They'll tell you where to go and just, (laughs) just go. And yeah, like it's another day. And I, you know, the whole thing was quite bizarre. No time was I like ever in handcuffs or arrested or anything like that. It was all a very much gentlemanly thing. So yeah, then the day comes and you have to say goodbye to your family and up in the plane to go to, I was in uh, Bradford, Pennsylvania. Then you have the cab. You know, I spent the night there. I got up in the morning, called a cab. I go, yeah, take me to the, this prison. So the guy pulls in, we go up to the front door. He goes, do you want me to wait for you? And I laughed. <laughs> I said, no, you should go now. <laughs> so did you go from the hotel to the cab by, to the prison by yourself? That ride? Yeah, just in the cab. So what, what were you thinking? I was thinking, I am just going to keep my mouth shut and my eyes open and do what I'm told and not break any rules and not give anybody any reason to keep me here one day longer than they have to. And I'll tell you, it was probably one of the most dysfunctional little cities I've ever lived in. I mean, that's just how I can describe it. Nothing but dysfunction in this place. um, Really? Because because of the others. Yeah, but you would think like it's so it's going to be so systematic and so organized and so regimented that how could it be that? You, yeah, you, you had to think. get in a routine. I mean, you, you literally yeah. had to find, but you were allowed to find your own routine. There was a lot of okay. uh, things available. And I ended up actually working. Everybody had a job, whether you were in the kitchen yeah. or the laundry room or scrubbing floors, cleaning. I ended up working for the front office staff and I had an administrative job because I could type a hundred words a minute and put two words together, make a full mm-hmm. sentence. And, yeah, sure. You know, so a lot of them, I'll say this in a really nice way. The staff was really nice, but they gave me all of their work to do after a while. It was really bizarre. I mean, bed assignments, job assignments. Really? They so would, you had the responsibilities that they were just giving you to handle yep. for them. Came with a lot of perks too. My own television, my own office. I had a guitar. They let me play and ice cream. <laughs> so know? it was tall. So, at least you, it was tolerable for you. Yeah, you can make it very tolerable if you don't say the wrong thing to the wrong person. Right. And you, you were know. occupied, which probably helped pass the time. The routine was everything. You yeah. had to do be doing something every minute of that. And then the day just went by and then the weeks went by and then the months went by. And it was crazy how fast time went when you are in a solid routine. I was in the best health of my life. I was benching 315 pounds. Wow. And everything was fine. You're actually isolated enough from the world. I didn't even know in 2008 when we had the mortgage crisis and interest yeah. rates and all that. Right. I had no idea. And really? Was, wow. Mm. 
I didn't watch news like that, but yeah. um, a lot of reading. You did just did what you had to do to get through the time. But I was planning because I knew my wife had wrote me and told me the AdSense business mm -hmm. had pretty much disappeared because they have these things called now, they're called Google slaps. And somebody woke up one day at Google and said, hey, Snively doesn't need two and a half million pages. And they right. just smacked exactly. me and yep. that income went from six figures to monthly to nothing, basically. And while you still can make money with AdSense today, it's not like it was back then. It it's a, a lot yeah. harder and it's a lot less money. Um, yeah, much more controlled. But there was nothing I can do. And that right, was when sure. I, the first time I had that real helpless feeling. Mm -hmm. And someone says, well, didn't you have internet? Couldn't you get on there? And I said, well, no. I had no internet access. I actually had the slowest search engine in the world. I had to write my wife and say, Google these words and print out the results and mail it to me. <laughs> really? Is that true? Yeah. yeah, that's true. And I was trying <coughs> to build a business. I actually, one of the other businesses I had, and this was all a complete no-no, this is as close as I came to breaking rules when I was inside, was I hand-coded with all HTML and CSS, I hand-coded a website that I would write out in my letters to my wife and she would then hand code it into the website, hmm. a site called anonymousinmate.com. And it was a $90 membership site to learn what it's like being in federal prison from a currently incarcerated person. Uh, learn what happens on day one, learn what happens with the health system, learn what happens with this, learn how the guest stuff works. Here's what the food's like. And so we ended up selling about 1400 memberships at the, the $97. And that was like my business while I was inside, but none of it was allowed. So I just right. kind of had the, it was interesting the way it worked. Well, I'm starting to catch your creativity. Like when you're faced with an issue, you've always relied, you know, maybe not consciously, but like creatively to solve your problem. I like it's that. It's that recognizing opportunities. Well, that's you know? what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. Used to drive my kids nuts. We would go to like a high school craft show and we'd be walking down the aisles and we'd come up to this lady selling candles and I'd start saying, Oh, you know what? We could systemize this and get her on Etsy and do that. And my kids would go, dad, stop. We're just here to see the crafts, you know, <laughs> <laughs> dad, stop, stop thinking. We just, yeah. let's relax. <laughs> but we still do that all the time yeah. now. Yeah. And sometimes you can take advantage of the opportunity because you have the bandwidth. Sometimes you see something comes along that's even better. So you can drop something that is maybe not doing as well mm -hmm. and taking too much bandwidth. But I think it's that smelting process of constant improvement. And it's the same with selling products on Amazon. If you only have X amount of money every month to spend on products, you want to make sure you're maximizing your returns. Absolutely. And so when something comes along, that's a higher return. You're going to replace it with the same money you were buying low return items and therefore get higher ROIs. It's no different. I kind of feel businesses like that. You constantly have to be improving it or one day you're going to wake up and it's going it's down the hill. It's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, a lot of, you know, back in the day, years ago when I owned restaurants, it's the same thing as about replacing menu items that aren't selling with menu items that are selling and then introducing newer, better product with a better profit margin. And the restaurants that don't grow and change and adapt they grow for three or four or five years and then they start trending down and nobody understands why. And that's why. Yeah, absolutely. 1000%. Oh, yeah. So I ended up getting out three years, three days later, just like the judge said. <laughs> really? And, yeah. uh, and now I'm broke, still broke. I'm still a couple million in debt. I mean, we've been able to pay lawyers off and a few other things, but still a lot of money to the government. 
And I'm right back in that same position. What am I going to do? So I had actually sold that eBay business. I forgot to mention that. But when the AdSense started to go really well, I ended up selling the eBay business and I had a three-year non-compete. So by the time I got out, the three years had gone by. Expired, sure. I'm like, might as well start that up again. So I started that same eBay business up again with customer return goods. But this time I had a lot more knowledge and information on mm -hmm. where to go and what to buy. So that very first year, I, we did $3 million in revenue. And that just kept growing. See, that would have been December 2008. And I did that until later in 2009 when I discovered Amazon, which was quite by accident. I bought a pallet of customer return goods and every single box was an Amazon box. And I looked at that and I said, well, this is weird. I had heard of Amazon. I right. even, I think I looked at it one time and said, oh, this is too complicated and it's too convoluted. I don't know if I want to sell on this platform because eBay was doing so good. But when all those Amazon boxes show up, something went off in my head. I said, I need to look at this again. And I did not realize the first time I looked at Amazon that you could actually sell used stuff on Amazon. I thought it was all new stuff. It wasn't. You can sell used stuff on Amazon. So think about this. Somebody bought this brand new blue widget on Amazon. They returned it. I bought it at liquidation and I'm turning around and sending it back to Amazon to sell as used. Yeah, for 70% or what? How much? Oh, you know, depending on the shape it was in, if right. I'm paying 10 cents on the dollar, we were selling it between a 40 and 85 cents on the dollar. You That's know, crazy. there was some stuff we could sell at 90 cents on the dollar. Women's <clears throat> shoes are a perfect example. I had made a deal with QVC once to buy all of their used uh, Birkenstocks, which are like $115 sandals. And we were buying 10 cents on the dollar. I learned a lot about women's shoes, I'm afraid to say. But one thing that I learned, was women will buy like five pairs of shoes, try them all on, keep one or two and send the rest back. And they are wow. brand new when they go back. So you know? when I'm looking at an item on Amazon and I see, you know, it's $19.20 for the hummingbird feeder. And then to the right, I see used. Those are all people that are buying the used product and then putting it back I, on the market. I believe a large percentage of the of used that. products sold on Amazon our Amazon customer return goods. That's crazy. Yeah, great information. Oh, it's a huge business too. Yeah. Now it doesn't have to be an Amazon return good. You could buy closeouts sure. or shelf pulls from any surplus company. The problem becomes authenticity at that point. And same with the liquidated goods. It's kind of funny, even though you're buying them, Amazon's the one liquidating these returns. They can still take issue with the fact, well, are they authentic or not? How do we know they're authentic? I said, well, how did you know they were authentic when you sold them in the first place? Well, that's place, right. You know? Exactly. Yeah, sure. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. But eBay is also still, a, I call eBay now the marketplace where products go to die. And that might be a little rough, yeah. but they've got trampled over the years. You can still sell a lot of those customer return goods on uh, eBay. And if for whatever reason, we can't sell it on Amazon because of, we'll sell it on eBay. Yeah. yeah. And plus we've set up websites too deal of the day type things and super value and yeah, to move those the product. Yeah. 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 And same with Facebook groups. You can just start a awesome sauce products, Facebook group and tell people about your deals and whatnot. Word will spread. People like saving money, especially yeah, now. Oh, anytime yeah, sure. there's a downturn. Yeah. It's all they little for really their values. Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause people got killed over the last couple of years and now they're really getting killed. So now it's 2010 and I, um, I'm doing great now on eBay and Amazon. And a friend of mine 
owned a distribution company and he sold lawn products to um, golf courses. So like all kinds of high-end golf course uh, fungicides and herbicides and grass seeds and things like that. So he's walking me through his warehouse one day and I saw this bucket of seed. I sell these big bags of seed. I know what those were, rye and Kentucky blue, but I see these buckets of seed. And I go, what is that? He goes, that's bent grass seed. So what's it used for? And he goes, tea boxes, fairways, and greens. And I said, huh. So if people wanted to have like a putting green in their backyard, this is the kind of seed he should use. He goes, yeah. So can you buy this in the store? He goes, no, you can only buy this professional turf grass places. And then they were sold in 25 pound buckets. I said, can I buy like a pound? To test, it was no, he got by the 25, 25 bucket, <laughs> like $200 for the bucket. It was kind of crazy. So, anyway, I went on to Amazon. Now, Amazon gives you the capability to create your own products if it doesn't already exist on Amazon. And this is called the private label side. What I was doing, you know, before the selling the customer return goods would be, you know, more of a wholesale thing. Right. And even if I was buying brand new goods that already existed, that's also wholesale. But if you're creating your own product on Amazon that doesn't exist, it's called private label. So I created a, a product selling one pound of bent grass seed. And it was kind of funny. I got to the part of the um, form that you're filling out where it says, well, who's the manufacturer? I know this is manufactured by a company called Pencross. Then the very next thing it says, well, what's the brand of this product? And I go, brand. I guess that's kind of my brand, isn't it? What do I put there? I just needed to get past that field so I could get this Keep product going, listed. Sure. Right. So I ended up putting down Todd's Seeds as the brand and kept going, filled out the form, hit post, the thing posted, sold out. Sold out in like three days. I'm like, whoa, what is going on with that? So I sent down, obviously I sent down more Pencross uh, Bentgrass Seed, right? But right. I started to think, well, it's a seed. I wonder if I could sell other seeds. So I found a, a company. Uh, actually, I found a few companies and I talked to them and I said, I want to buy seeds wholesale. You know, I want to contract with the farmers, buy specific seeds. And one guy said, I'll help you. I said, okay. So I bought a pound, one pound of beefsteak tomato seed and made a thousand uh, packets out of it. I paid $19 for the pound of seed and the thousand packets sold at a dollar net profit each. So I made a thousand dollars off of 19 pounds of tomato seeds. That's a great return. And I said, okay, I need more seeds. So now (laughs) Todd Seeds has over 600 different kinds of seeds, is an eight figure business. No. And it's one I'll probably uh, exit in two years when I turn 62 for a very nice number. And it all started with one pound of Pencross Bentgrass. And I just didn't know what to put for a brand name. So I put Todd Seeds. And to this day, now people search for Todd Seeds on Google and our website does 10 times the volume that we do on Amazon because seed people are very loyal. I would say they definitely are. Sure. Absolutely. Year after year. And again, here's another thing. When you hit a recession or times get tough, People People want to grow grow. their own vegetables again. Yeah. Perfect timing. So we sell a lot of seeds. That's that's perfect timing. That's, that is fascinating. That's a good thing you walked through that warehouse. I know. Right. And that all started (laughs) with that. And it's like, I didn't even know he sold stuff like that. Now, after that, I, I went to him and I found everything that he would sell to me that I could sell on Amazon. That was brand new. And that was when I first started selling brand new things 
on Amazon in addition to the seeds. So mm-hmm. if he had even golf ball washers, I mean, people bought this stuff all the time. It was just really weird. I couldn't figure it out. But anything to do with running a golf course this guy had, or even anything to do with turf uh, mm-hmm. in particular. So anything he would sell to me, I would buy, put it right on Amazon and did really well. One day he ended up merging with another company that was specialized in uh, pest control. So he gave me a list of everything this company sold. And he goes, do you think you'll be able to sell any of this on Amazon? And I ran that list and I go, oh my gosh, yes. I said, please go buy that company now so you can sell me these products. And for many, many, many years, we don't really sell the pest stuff anymore because of federal regulations and things like that. Mm -hmm. Amazon actually got in a lot of trouble. They had to dial it back a bit. But we were selling stuff that nobody ever sold on Amazon, professional pest control chemicals that weren't restricted, but nobody was able to go into a store and buy them. You normally had to get them through an exterminator, right? Right, right. And so people were buying those and, oh my gosh, that was one of our biggest selling lines for a long time was the pest control stuff. That eventually went away. Like I said, just it's one of those product lines that just regulations really killed. And Amazon, for a long time, they would just ignore regulations because they were so big. But I guess the fines got large enough, it got their attention. They yeah, had to and do then something the, the publicity it. was round up and all that. Then 2014, yeah. I started to have people come to me just out of the blue because I had made some posts in Facebook groups trying to show people how to do this wholesale distribution because everybody else was pitching you should do private label. You should do private label. And I'm like, you really shouldn't unless you know what you're doing and have a lot of money because it's risky. You should do the mm-hmm. wholesale thing first. It's very straightforward. These things are already selling. And finally, enough people were interested. Somebody formed a Facebook group called, it's kind of embarrassing. It's called Todd is the Amazon boss of us and put everybody in this group. And I guess I was expected to follow along and <laughs> help in that group. And we did that about for about six months for free. And finally, I said, wow, this is taking up a lot of time. How about I just write a course? And if you guys are interested, you can buy it. And that was the course I wrote in 2015. And we're still selling that program. Actually, I just put a pause on it. It's called Wholesale Product Mastery. I'm not selling it right now because I want to update it for Mm -hmm. everything that's changed since COVID. So maybe in the next couple of months, we'll relaunch that program. Yeah, it sounds like the timing is right for that. But what's really strange is, is many millions that I made selling products, especially on Amazon, we've actually made more money selling the course on how to do it. And people ask me all the time, well, how do you feel about that? Making money selling the course? I said, well, I actually do what I say in the course also. <laughs> so I'm not just selling a course. I'm actually doing this. Yeah. So you, you know, believe so in what you're doing. Of course. Not only do I believe it, I do it. You you know? yeah, I mean, right. It's not fiction in, in my case. This is like, if you ask me a question about selling on Amazon, I'm going to answer you from my like to the second knowledge right. know, of what I know. But wow, we have to talk about coming full circle, you know? So now we have all these different online profit centers that we're working. I just formed this new mastermind that I was telling you about because people are just over, they get overwhelmed with the tech side, especially the older people. I just turned 60 and the tech side has always just kind of been, I don't know, a natural thing. I did a real techie thing when I was in the air force. Mm -hmm. And so I found that a lot of people though, they're just, especially the older group, they're just scared of the tech stuff. I love taking that group of people and being able to show them the tech side is not scary. And here's the step-by-step. And then we actually are in community at that time also. It's not like Mm -hmm. you're buying a course. It's We're just hanging out 
you have questions, we can answer them, right? Yep. Yeah, we actually, I do a office hours. It's a live thing. And then, and my thing is, yeah, you bring the Q's and I'll bring the A's and That's know, we'll, get, we'll get you moving forward. But I believe everybody should do something every single day to move towards their goals. Otherwise, they're just going to be spinning their wheels, you know. So what percentage of the course, people that are buying the courses are over 40? Oh, I would say 70%. No, and here's why. Awesome. I can tell you why too, because I've talked with a lot of these people. Number one, that group, believe it or not, actually have resources. Okay. Everybody that has come to me, and they're usually below that age, very few resources. And the question is, how can I make money online with no money? Right. I'm like, well, that's, that's not my Tough specialty. Right. Tough to do. <laughs> you have to be willing to do stuff that you're just not going to be willing to do if you have money, right? With the older group, not only do they have the resources and they want to put it to work, but they're seeing retirement down the road. They don't have enough money in the 401k. They maybe they're put just finished putting somebody through college, you know, and they're trying to figure out how to fill that tank back up with money. Mm -hmm. They have a really good why. And a lot of the, the younger people, I don't think they really have defined their why. They just don't want to work for anybody. And that can be a why, or they just want somebody to hand something to them. Yeah. A lot of times the younger kids just have not really been beat up enough to really go like, I'm out of here. I'm going to no, go I know. This. Tell me one time, you need to help me. You know, you must help me. I said, you think you're entitled for me just to help you? He goes, Yes. And I said, let me show you. I said, over all these years, I figured out exactly what you're entitled to. Let me write it down for you. And I held up a blank piece of paper. And I exactly. said, this is what you're entitled to. Yeah. And he said, oh, that was kind of rude. I said, oh, the truth can hurt sometimes, you know, but yeah. the quicker you learn those lessons, the better off you're going to be. But the older people, and they're much more committed, you know, and I'm not ageist. I'm not trying to be ageist because young people, some young people are just killing it, but they're I'm killing sure. it in their realm. You know, they're on YouTube influencing, they're mm -hmm. on TikTok influencing mm -hmm. and things like that, which is also can be very difficult. But the older people are more interested in a traditional business. I want to buy something for a dollar and sell it for two. Show me how to do it in this new marketplace online because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. the brick and mortar stores, they're going away. You don't want to go invest in a brick and mortar business right now. That's not where you want to start nope. in 2022. Definitely not. Right. But there's so much, but hey, wait, but there's so many available to lease. Oh, so many stores are empty. Isn't it a good time to go rent brick and mortar? I used to walk by the empty brick and mortar stores and those ideas would click off. They don't anymore. Now right. I walk by the empty brick and mortar stores and just keep going because right. I got nothing. I got right. nothing for that store. You know, right. Right. nothing. Right. So tell me who inspired you in your life? Like, how did you get on this track of being your own boss? What was that? A lot of my motivation in the beginning was very negative. And by that... You know, I grew up in a very dysfunctional home. My dad was a severe alcoholic, but for the longest time, he was a functioning alcoholic, mm -hmm. right? But he worked for the state, actually. He was a bank examiner. So you would think, you hear that, oh, he works for the state of Michigan. He's a bank examiner. You have a very specific idea in your mind. This is a conservative, you know, he had mm -hmm. it straight by the numbers. No, he was as unethical of a person that you could ever meet. And here he is a bank examiner. So most of my lessons growing up were horrific. And it's like you're taught something and you know it's wrong, but you don't quite know why it's wrong. You just, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> the intrinsic goodness in your body. So I was constantly fighting with that when I was growing up and all I couldn't figure out what was going on. So all I knew is I had to get out of the house. And that's why I graduated high school early 
and joined the Air Force when I was 17. That was the only way I could know to get out of the house. And how was your relationship bit. with your dad at that point? Was he telling you, hey, you need to go in the service? Or was that just you saying, hey, I think I'm going to go in the That was 100% my idea. He gave no real direction. The whole time I was growing up, both him and my mom were broke. Understand we're poor. You're poor. You're probably always going to be poor. No. You should be lucky you have this ketchup and hot water for lunch. You know, you should be lucky mm -hmm. because some people don't even have this. You should be lucky you have a roof over your head. And when you do figure out how to get out of here, you better be thankful for whatever meager existence life gives you. I'm like, wow, this sounds like this is going to be terrible. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Joining the service was nothing more than an escape mechanism to get out of that house and to get away from my folks. And once I was in the service and I got a taste of, I was going to say what real life is like, but it's funny because in the service, it's a completely different life. A military life is different mm -hmm. than a civilian mm -hmm. life. I got a taste of freedom though, is what yeah. I got. And even yeah. though things yeah. were very strict in the, in the Air Force, and I had a bit of a hard time with authority, just the way I was raised with my dad. He always taught me that, you know, you should lie your way out of trouble. You know, you shouldn't, mm -hmm. laws are just there as suggestions. That kind mm -hmm. of thing it was terrible. Mm -hmm. so, so it was a little difficult for me in the service. But when I got out, really, I was in a position of what am I going to do now, right? Mm -hmm. And all I knew was I really didn't want to work for anybody. So mm -hmm. I was trying to find a way to make money just on my own. And that was when somebody else had suggested to me serving the legal papers. And mm -hmm. that was why I, I formed that legal services business. Mm -hmm. And again, the only real job I had after that was when I decided I wanted to try flying for a living. I was actually a pilot before I had my driver's license. I sold on my 16th birthday. Yeah, I read that in your story. I thought that was pretty impressive. Man, my sister used to have to drive me to the airport for my flying lessons. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, I loved flying. I wanted to see if I would enjoy it as a career. I did not. Never made more than $28,000 a year dodging thunderstorms and uh, tornadoes, the whole nine yards, all at night, all single pilot, freight dog. It was terrible. Yeah. So I, when I, I actually had a couple of events that really shook me up. I had uh, three major engine failures in a 90-day period, and one of them I almost <clears> died. <throat> and after the third one, I had gotten a uh, voicemail. I'd woken up in the morning after flying all night, a voicemail from my mom saying that my younger brother, he was two years younger than me, had died. I'm sitting there in this hotel in Western Nebraska. I had survived three engine failures. Now my younger brother is dead. And all of a sudden I'm starting to think, this is stupid. You need a different path. And I started listening. Do you remember Nightingale Conant? I don't know oh, if they're still absolutely. around. Absolutely. Positively. Yeah, all, right. oh, yeah. all my personal development came out of, out of them. Exactly. For years. I started to do the same oh, thing. God, yeah. I started to listen. Napoleon to Hill. Earl, Earl Napoleon Nightingale. Hill, Earl, Earl Nightingale. Nightingale Stephen Les Cowley, Brown. Les Brown. Oh my God, no, no, Les no, no, Brown. No. If you want something bad enough to go out and fight for it, to work day and night for it, to give up your time, your peace, <laughs> your sleep for it. I mean, I can recite it. It's like powerful. I actually got to meet him. And uh, it was one of my dreams, actually. It was on my bucket list. I see Les Brown every day on Facebook. Yeah. He told me this. Now, he said this in his books, but he said to me a little differently when we were talking. He said, Todd, he said, you're either in a problem, you're headed for a problem, or you just left a problem. How you deal with those situations and all of the periods of time in between will determine not only how successful you are, but how happy you are in life. When the doo-doo hits the fan, just see, oh, that's a problem I'm in now and deal with it. Go over it, under through it, but don't let it conquer you. 
He goes, because so many people just lay down and quit and give up on their dreams because of a problem. And I see that all the time. And you don't know what to do about it because I'm not a mindset guy. I'm not a Les Brown. <laughs> you know, I can learn from him and implement. But when someone comes to me and says, you know, I've bought eight $5,000 programs in the last year and I've done nothing with any of them. What's the problem? I go, do you really got to ask that? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Look in the mirror, my friend. Let's exactly. start there. Right. But other than slapping them in the face, I'm not the guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a mindset guy. I, uh, I feel that I have the gift of resiliency, but I also feel that that's a trait you can learn. You're not born with it. You can right. develop it. If, if you feel yeah, you're not resilient. Action. And I also think it's probably one of the most important traits that an entrepreneur can have. Because there are so many problems you have to deal with in life and business. Yeah, you better you have, be resilient. Yeah, you have to sing and dance. There's no question. And you have to take massive action. Adjust, monitor, and move on. Yeah, totally. So I, I really credit those guys from Nightingale Conant with kicking me in the pants. Because the first business, even though I did that on myself, the reason I sold it, I sold it for the wrong reason. I got scared. It was growing too fast. And I needed money to finance it to continue the growth. And I got scared. And so I ended up selling it probably at a discount. And my shiny object was going and getting my commercial pilot certificate. I regret that today. I look you back at that. Regrets, say, yeah. yeah, that's one of my huge regrets. Yeah. I should have just stuck with it, grown mm -hmm. that business and not messed around with the commercial pilot stuff. But mm -hmm. that's okay. You know, even the mistakes, I was making mistakes all the way up until that nuclear disaster I told you about. Yeah, I was probably more self-destructive than I wanted to admit. But after that big reset button mm -hmm. got hit yeah. and I had nothing or less than nothing and I was able to start over, you know, I got right into the therapy and I said, I got to fix my thinking. You know, I think my thinking is irrational and I'm justifying things and I got to mm -hmm. figure out why and I got to stop doing it. I'm going to end up in the exact same position, building up something great and just blowing it up. Well, that was pretty brave, I would say. It was hard too. Oh, yeah. Know? I can look back on it now and see what, how valuable it was. It caused me to make some huge changes in my life, which I needed, but some of them were difficult. And so I think also that goes back to prior to 2002 was just the lack of courage also in doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should have shut that business down instead of not following the rules, but oh, then people would have seen me as a failure and I wouldn't have had this, that, and the other thing. And well, you know, that's, now, the, that's the life of the entrepreneur. You know, it's yeah. the yin and the yang, you know, it's like, you got to really have a really strong sense of who you are, what you're about, what's driving you and what you get out of it. I finally do. <laughs> the last 20 years have been this wonderful, despite everything. I tell people I, I've earned over a hundred million online, but I did it the hard way. I did 50 million prior to 2002, lost it, and then did another 50. Now it's way past that. But my point is, is I did it the hard way. You don't have to do it the way I did it. You know, right. So tell um, me this. Let me ask you this. So I'm sure people who listen to this podcast are sitting there saying, there are so many courses. There are so many flashy things online with the internet. It's just everywhere. Like, how do I know? How do you know? Like, I, let's say I'm one of those guys. Let's just say theoretically. And I'm like, yeah, I will do whatever it takes and I will follow the course. But how do I know? that's a real course. How do you know? That's a great question. And it highlights a couple of problems. The main one being, there's a lot of fraud out there 
where and by fraud, what I mean is people are selling the sizzle and there's no stake, right? Exactly. You're buying a one through 10 program that's missing step three, seven, and nine. How are you ever going to be successful? You're just set up for failure. So you have to avoid that. How do you avoid that? You know, I used to tell people that you had to really do a deep dive and look at the reviews and all of that, but there's so much review manipulation now. Right. It's hard. I think what you need to do is you need to find some of your peers that have accomplished what you've accomplished that aren't the gurus, if you will, some mm -hmm. of your peers, and whether that's through uh, Facebook groups or whatever, and just ask them, you know, I, I'm looking for a mentor. I'm looking for a training program. I'm interested in this particular vertical to make money. How did you do it? You know, mm -hmm. what would you suggest? So that personal referral, I think, goes a long way, especially when it's a non-compensated non one, just some guy that you just happen to message and say, right. you know, sorry for hitting you up out of the blue, but can I just ask you a couple of quick questions? Cause I don't, I don't have five grand to, to flush down the toilet, you know, on a bad decision. Yeah. Two or three times. And exactly. Right. And the thing is, is when you get that personal referral, to me, it means so much more, you know, mm -hmm. that gold plated referral, as opposed to seeing a Facebook ad come down the the pike and you click on it and, you know, he's got the little hook that gets you into the lead magnet. And then right. there's the trip wire and then there's sure. the webinar and then there's the pitch and the fear of missing out and all the fake scarcity. I hate mm -hmm. fake scarcity. Oh, I absolutely hate that. That's the biggest sign to me that, that the red right. lights flashing, something's <clears throat> wrong. The bigger problem I think is people need to pick, they need to pick a, a profit center that actually they're somewhat passionate about. I hate using the word passionate, but you're not going to, well, they're interested center. in, yeah, they're, yeah, they're interested. interested in, that's a yeah. much better word, yeah, yeah. you know, because if you're not, you're not going to stay along with it. I mean, you can hear me talk about making a lot of money on Amazon. And if you have to force yourself to, to get do it every day. somewhat yeah. excited about that, don't yeah. do it, yeah. you know, but there's something for everybody. And a lot of times just, you know, talking with somebody about it can help. Like I said, there was a lunch and a bite of a right. sandwich. I know, crazy. Mention of eBay. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> do you remember what you had for lunch? He had a chicken, a grilled chicken salad sandwich, and I had a Reuben. Yeah. <laughs> I can picture it. I can picture the drive back. I can Wait, picture myself walking through the house. Those are like things. defining moments that you go through in your life. You can look right back on it and go, I know exactly what that was. Yeah. yeah. That's why I tell people I can remember the date. It was March 13th, yep. 2002. Yeah. So what would you say to people today, you know, in closing, they want to be in business for themselves. What kind of skills do they need? What do they... What kind of behaviors do they need to really nail down? I think the biggest mistake people make is not treating it like a real business. I've heard so that. if you really want to start making money, whether you call it a side hustle or an online business, whatever you want to term it, do it the right way. Get a real entity, get a real set of books, right? Do the correct accounting. And if you don't know how to do it to set up the books, go on to Fiverr, pay a CPA out of the Philippines, 35 bucks right, right. to set up your books. And learn a little bit about how to read those financial statements so that you know the true value of your business at any mm -hmm. given time. Mm -hmm. So the numbers are very important, but mm -hmm. treat it like a real business. Expense the things you're allowed to expense. Book your income properly. You know, work with a CPA to do the tax return at mm -hmm. the end of the year. It's mm -hmm. well worth it. Mm -hmm. But most importantly is once you're treating it like a business, make sure you're just not playing business, right? You have to be serious. Like a lot of people, they'll go, but they'll buy a $5,000 training program and think they've accomplished something. Right? No, you have right. not accomplished anything other than, 
you know, spending five grand, you now have to do the work right. and you have to understand that there is no easy button. There's no magic millions from the sky. You have to do the work. And so having that proper time management plan and accomplishing things, I don't care how long it takes you, however long is however long, but make sure you're trying to do something every single day, big or little, so that you're moving towards that goal and you can see that you're moving towards that goal. And so it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's how you're doing it. You know, they say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, right? So tell me, um, what do you see for the future for you guys? Well, again, I just turned 60, six days ago. <laughs> so a happy birthday. Thank you very much. And I'm looking in the next couple of years at exiting some of my higher touch businesses. So all I want to do moving forward is create content to monetize the content, whether that's through affiliate programs or whatnot. But I'm going to be really big into um, the, the good affiliate programs, the long-term ones, maybe even the boring ones, depending mm -hmm. on how you look at it and creating the proper kind of content to be able to have a long-term sustainable business that you can do from anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, right now, one of my last high-touch businesses has a warehouse and employees and equipment. Mm -hmm. And a couple of years when that goes away, again, all it's going to be is the online content creation and income production, mostly from affiliate programs, but the right ones done the right way. And I want to grow my community. You know, I have this these like-minded people in my mastermind community. I just want to grow that and work within that. No more mm -hmm. Facebook, nothing like that. Everything's mm -hmm. just going to be within my community for me so I can get rid of a lot of the noise, if you will, and sure. just deal with like-minded people. Well, and improve your quality of your life as you shed some of those high-touch businesses for sure. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on today. I thought it was fascinating to look at your life and tell people how they can get in touch with you and where they can find you. You'll find me in my community. Just come to createprofits.online, createprofits.online and come in and say hello and ask questions and see if it's a place you feel comfortable. And if so, stick around. Well, I think people need your course. I think people need uh, hope and I think people need and the truth <laughs> yeah, and they need truth and they need to be motivated. Because people get lost, you know, the, the pandemic, people don't know what to do, where to go, how to think, what am I doing? Should I be working? Should I be working for myself? But the people that are listening that have the, excuse me, the itch, it's an itch. They need to scratch it. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to go through your life changing jobs seven to 10 times and it's, it's insanity and you're going to end up broke. So yeah, uh, you need to make your own security. You're going to be a you, lot happier and, and they get can. that time freedom, that right. time freedom. Oh, right. It's not a dream. I mean, it really occurs. You it just got to put in the work, as you say. So listen, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for coming on today. And uh, we'll talk again soon. The privilege was mine. Thank you very much. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in today. Make sure you subscribe to the show in iTunes or wherever you consume podcast information. And if you feel so inclined, please leave a four or five star rating and a comment with a review below. We hope to truly learn something today. Share this podcast. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.